we've got to just keep doing the best we can right now. But I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years' time, and I am scared about it. It's just not sustainable. There are no nurses coming through. The ones that do, do not want to work in the NHS because they can get paid three times as much for an agency. Just from a, like a numbers point of view, the old are massively going to outweigh the workers, like the people who need to be cared for, are going to outweigh the amount of people who are available to care for them. I wouldn't risk it, and I would advise other people to not risk it if they can help it. I work with elderly people, and we have a lot of of end-of-life patients, you know, patients that are going to pass. We try and get patients home, but there's a lot of patients that are actually too ill. It's not appropriate to send them home. Because they are end-of-life, there is nothing more that we could do to actually make them better. But you do notice then that they have less care than people that are able to get better and move on. But you do notice that the end-of-life people are very much kind of put in a room they do comfort observations, they make sure they're okay, but they are kind of left. Another thing that feels a bit remiss not to mention is, is the dependence that we have on unpaid care work being provided by people's families, and especially by that sort of generation of like women in their 60s, not just women, but mostly women, who thought that they'd be able to be retired by now. The pensions um, threshold changing has kept them in work longer than they ever expected to be, and that they're sort of simultaneously caring for elderly parents and grandchildren because of kind of inadequacies of childcare support as well. And there were times when people would come in with a heart attack and we physically couldn't treat them because the people who had had a heart attack an hour ago were like just waiting for a bed. So there was just no space in the system for them to go through the process. And people are at the hospital but cannot get treatment and will die waiting in the hospital for treatment people waiting ambulances dying because there's a 90 year old in a bed well but there is no social care for them Verify IV drip. Yeah, that's on. Pupil dilation? Not for me. Oh, they're coming round. <gasps> Welcome, friend. My name is Dr. Evans. And I'm student nurse Morley. Let's check the chart. It says here your name is the NHS. Oh, shh, shh, shh. Don't try to speak. You burnt your tongue on a hot pie. It's in a cast. It says here they're the largest employer in Europe. Ooh. Yes, doctor. And one in 25 workers in the UK work in the NHS. We're inside the NHS right now. What? Yeah. That's not good. Yes, Doctor. That's why they're in the hospital. The NHS is unwell. I'm finally beginning to understand. Nurse, stethoscope. Yeah. Let's have a listen. What do you hear? Tired staff sighing. A few of them crying. Ooh. Mm. I can hear money tumbling through their body like a Blackpool coin pusher. I can hear it landing in the gaping moor of a private equity-owned foot scrape clinic. Can I have a little go? Yeah, sure, sure. 
What do you hear? Uh, there's a man with a pitchfork through his head and a doctor's telling him to lose weight. Diagnosis? Utterly wrecked. What do we do? Maybe they could benefit from clapping, like mass social support. That's valuable, right? Absolutely it is. For example, you could help a podcast grow by sharing it on social media. Maybe I could give it £10. Mm, I'm afraid that might not be enough, Doctor. It might require fundraising on a much bigger scale. Sort of, but in many ways different from how you might support a podcast by searching its name into Patreon and subscribing to unlock bonus content, such as how when you pay taxes to unlock healthcare through a national service provider. I'm finally beginning to understand. (gasps) Nurse, have you got a tenner? Didn't you say you went a tenner? I need that for lunch. Well, uh. Thank you. Thank you, Captain Tom. 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 One of my numerous visits in my life to A&E, and there was a guy with a, with a, a pitchfork through his foot. This was in Wales, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In North Wales, and he'd pitchforked his foot. He was sort of cartoonishly blasé about it. Like, they'd done whatever to it that made it not pour blood all over the floor, but the pitchfork was still in his foot. There's <laughs> something mm. really, really funny. Like, it's funny at a slapstick level to have put a pitchfork through your own foot. It's that's, cartoonish. That's cartoonish, right? It's the sort of partridge, I've trod on a spike. Yeah. You've, put, you've not trod on a spike, you've put the spike into your foot. Yeah, um, you've pitched onto a foot. Them sort of reading a magazine. <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, but also... <laughs> it's reading like, a magazine? Yeah, well, what, yeah. You just, what, this was Keeping up appearances. Th- that's pure keeping up experiences. Yeah. There's no way on earth that text is going in the mind. <laughs> They're just trying to blend in. They're trying to downplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're trying to downplay the pitchfork by being like, but I'm otherwise hyper-normal. Yeah, Look, yeah, I'm yeah. doing a crossword. I'm, I'm up to date on my Sudoku. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also, the fact that someone with a pitchfork through their foot is waiting. Oh, I've got a pitchfork through my foot. And they're like, yeah, that's nothing, mate. You should see someone who's got like a full shovel through their head. There's three people <laughs> with a trowel in their spinal cord. Yeah. Way ahead of you in the queue tonight. At the top is someone with an entire lawnmower fully inside them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on. It's still on. Yeah. The problem is normally there's a bit that's poking out we can pull on. Not today. Can't get it, yeah. <laughs> We've got to go in and do exploratory surgery to find out where it is. <laughs> Imagine playing the game Operation, but instead of like a gaping hole with edges that go, eh, you can hear a lawnmower, but you can't see it. Yeah, you're just going to approach a real person with real feelings with a stethoscope to find out where that engine sound is coming from. <laughs> And also, you know it's going to run out of diesel or whatever it runs on. So you've got this like hard time limit, like ramping up the stress. <laughs> Do you remember when you filled that last up? Oh, it would have been weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> you seen any mad A&E shit? I haven't spent much time in A&E, really. I'm mainly just fishing out suicidal friends after they've just bounced uh, yeah, off the yeah. lack of services. Yeah. Um, That's so bad that we've both of... had that experience. <laughs> oh, who has not had that experience of like, there's someone that you cannot help further and then you sort of you just it's like a game of squash just bouncing Mm. them like a ball off the complete lack of help the nhs can give them and then they just come back 
So really, it's just like no problem's been solved, but now we've got to deal with transport because they left in an ambulance. Mm. And they're coming back in, well, I don't know. <laughs> I can't drive. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to put my suicidal friend in an Uber. Just because the kind of, it just depends on the driver, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a special service. You know, there's Uber when you've just got five people. There should be mm. Uber for someone who's like really fragile. Like your kindest driver, please. Yeah, they'd make you pay more. They'd make you pay more. Oh, of course, but I think under the circumstances, you know, I'd be willing to dig a little deeper. <laughs> <laughs> you also get maybe people pay for arsehole driver. People pay to go to that restaurant where everyone's an arsehole. Oh, but I think here it would have to be cheaper, right? And then suddenly arsehole would become the norm. Mm. Because, right, it would end up with a, an economy where some drivers who aren't arseholes, they're not getting as many fares because they're yeah. more expensive than the arsehole. So they yes. have to become an arsehole to get more custom, but their hourly wage goes down. So... I oppose this policy. <laughs> Are you saying market forces might not be the best way to um, provide a public service? It's not the best way to do literally. Like, even if I just, even just between, like, several people in a room who want to exchange stuff, you just wouldn't try and use market forces. <laughs> when would you ever advocate for everyone just standing with their products screaming like it's a market stall? <laughs> the NHS gets views with rose-tinted glasses because yeah. we've always got America across the ocean to contrast it against. We can contrast it against the worst healthcare system in the globe. Mm. I love when Americans get shipped over to be like, I'm an American. I remember the first time someone phoned the ambulance for me, I was crying. I thought it would be, you know, I'd be absolutely indentured for the rest of my life, but I realized you've got a national health service and I love it and it makes me proud to live here or sometimes mm. visit here. I'm waiting for the health crisis to get so bad that you get the pendulum swinging the other way of being like, I'm an American, and even though you can end up in debt, in my home country, I'm insured. And here, I go to an ambulance, and I'm taken to this waiting room, and it looks like the waiting room from Beetlejuice. Everyone's <laughs> ill, dead, or dying. I cannot be seen by everyone. Mm. Everyone's avoiding my eyes like I'm a literal ghost. I find it impossible to get healthcare here and I can't buy health insurance which would allow me to get it so I will just have to die it's easier to die at that point there'll be a point where it's easier to die there comes an amount of emails that you've sent trying to work out please who help can me. see you yeah yeah I just want help I think soon at the moment it's middle managers in the NHS deciding who's going to get to live and who's going to get to die but that's eventually going to get that's going to get contracted out to the consumer of being like is it worth this amount of hassle or should I just die maybe the whole family gets together and does a cost benefit analysis based on how good, well you've behaved that's when dignitas will come in they'll legalize it when uh, it'll cut NHS waiting lists when it'll be framed as a cost saving thing you could see a lot of pro suicide coming in and it will be it'll be like universal basic income where it's mm. like you know it's kind of wonkish but look everyone agrees everyone's come around the table but the really yeah. sad people agree and also the right wing agree because <laughs> it's going to lower costs you can think of it as um it's cutting out expenditure well lower costs and then it might be profitable because you can commodify dying if you can commodify suicide mm. dollar sign spinning cartoonishly in your eyeballs I honestly think that the, the wheels of commodification are so well greased. It's going to go right through commodification into fashionification and trendification. <laughs> Designer suicides, what are you going to die in? Check my fit. Check my corpse fit. Instagram story, my visit to Dignitas. Vloggers and influencers going in, but the, the vlog just abruptly ends because they didn't realise they couldn't do like a, a roundup at the end. <laughs> <laughs> no one could edit it. 
yeah, it just it just ends up being really badly edited. They just hadn't thought through how it gets edited and delivered. <laughs> <laughs> And they actually got it all for free as a brand partner. Yes, because it won't just be Dignitas, of course. Once it's fully legalised, it'll enter the market and there'll be all kinds of different... Virgin Kill. Pepsi Death. (laughs) (laughs) Pepsi Minimum. The true minimum. Not even alive. One in 25 people in the UK work for the NHS. A workforce which is 75% female. Nursing is one of the biggest staff shortages in the healthcare system right now. So we spoke to several nurses, including Josie Stripe, a student nurse in the north of England, about the realities of nursing in the NHS at the moment. We also spoke to Erin Cullen, an occupational therapist in Sheffield, to better understand the realities of NHS healthcare outside of the hospital setting. The rest of the interviewees chose to remain anonymous. I looked after a patient in the north of England who needed admission to a specialist bed and there were none available in the whole of the north of England. Eventually, after they'd been waiting in the hospital for nearly a day, a bed was found in Sussex and it was in a private hospital. That was the nearest bed that was available and that's where they went. And it, it's, it's horrible. And I don't even want to think about how much it cost. On my very first day, I pitched up to work and every single nurse that was there was an agency member of staff, not employed by the trust, just employed on like ad hoc, you know, day rates. So no one could show me around. No one could show me how to do the job. No one could orientate me to the computer systems. It was just bonkers. And because they're agency employed, they've got very little kind of accountability for anything. So in a way, it's great because they were maintaining minimum staffing levels, but the staff that were there were just bodies and had no like allegiances or didn't really give a shit about patients because they knew that they were going to see them for a day and then never see them again. Carers, you know, they do an incredible job and the pressure to kind of squeeze visits in and the amount of time. It's one of the things I hear all the time from people I work with. Often people who live on their own don't necessarily see anybody. Oh, you know, the carers come in, but they only come in for 10 minutes and then they're gone. And sort of then what's the point? And I think that's, that's no criticism of the people doing those jobs many of whom are incredible. It's just the system. There are resource limitations. People are working on worse terms and conditions than than they would be if they were in the NHS, often on lower pay, and ultimately are working to a a private company that's taking money out of managing people's distress, which just feels horrendous to think about. It is what seems like an easy route to solving the problem quickly, but of course then leads to increasing reliance on the private sector to provide basic services that should be provided in-house in the first place. Because of the pressures on, on my role, a lot of the time what I will primarily be trying to do is link people into other services, getting them to go to charities or community groups. Um, and there's so much, again, there's like wonderful people who work for these small organisations in the community, run, you know, running groups or activities, and but they're always dependent on Where's the next funding going to come from? Where's the next grant? Are we going to be able to keep doing this work for beyond a year? But especially, I mean, obviously, I, I can speak for Sheffield because I know it. Without the, the charity she- sector in Sheffield, the hospitals here, I don't see how they could remotely function. Increasingly, like supplementary services, so like podiatry and audiology and ear syringing, things like that, toenail cutting. I've got patients whose toenails are like claws. I cannot get anyone to cut them because they're like, oh, it's a podiatrist's job to cut toenails. I'm like, okay, I'll refer to the podiatrist. Actually, we're not accepting new referrals for toenails at the moment. I'm like, okay, so what do I need to do with this lady who's got clawed feet and can't walk? Oh, well, she'll have to wait till she gets discharged and then she has to pay £40. (laughs) This is just... 
I'm like, I have some toenail clippers here. I'm like, yeah, but you're not insured to do it, so you can't do it. That's just like a, a small example of what it is like to try and get anything done in the NHS. When I worked in Leeds, the department I worked in was taken over by, I think it was Braun or Siemens, one of the big kind of technology manufacturing companies. And like nothing ostensibly changed, but they told us that they now owned it. <laughs> so it was kind of quite shady. And the only thing that we knew that was that suddenly the prices started to appear on all of the equipment we used. <laughs> so that was interesting. And I remember we got invited to a consultation with the with the company before they kind of took over. And they said, have you got any questions? And I and I was like, yeah, wasn't it for you guys? What's your cut? And they were just like, anyway, that's the end of questions. <laughs> they just refused to answer. <laughs> so that was interesting. These are like all these little kind of services have just been gradually stripped away to the point where you'll probably only be able to get, you know, emergency treatment relatively soon I would I would say within the next few years that's that feels the way it's going they're kind of trimming around the edges at the moment so like ah you you can't hear anything but it's not going to kill you or your toenails are three inches long but you'll be fine we're not we're not obliged to deal with that anymore I'll tell you it was a dick move by the full solidarity with the doctors but they uh they put out some some PR line of making doctors being able to make more serving coffee than patients of like, well, a doctor gets this, but a, bar- a barista could earn this. Get fucked. Neither barista nor doctor deserves to live in poverty. Yeah, and just trading on this idea of like, the worst thing that could happen to a doctor is they get treated in some way like the working class. Mm. Why bring this class antagonism into it? It's, it's like a legitimate workplace dispute. There's just no reason to throw anyone else under the bus. How many baristas do you think are going to support this campaign now? Yeah. God, doctors are being treated like me, and I'm scum. <laughs> Fair play. Loads of doctors were like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> it was the what? yeah, but but to loads of doctors, it, it you know passed passed the mustard. Like doctors are as much as they care for health; they're like a requirement for us being well. Doctors are still part of like the old British institutions. Yeah. It's not like a fundamentally progressive or socially equalitarian mm. institution. It comes out of the old, like, British medical associations. Yeah. I mean, we're not going full conspiracy theory here and saying, like, doctors are lying and actually you just need to cover yourself in loads and loads of leeches. Medical professionals ha- have do valuable work. But at the same time, let's be honest, a lot of doctors are dickheads and treat people horribly for bullshit reasons. I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this has had a fucking weird interaction with a doctor, right? Well, that's it. It's it's the promise that becoming a doctor will make you completely like... It's a one-way ticket to middle class for the rest of your yeah. life. Yeah. And respect. And so when their workplace conditions are crumbling, it's that like class status. You can see these advertisements are a reflection of it. it's mm. like the class status is not being respected. Yes. That was part of the bargain. I I heal you Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. that I am middle class. And the problem with that when it comes to like healthcare outcomes is that you can see that there's those antagonisms. Working class mistrust of the doctor mm. is incredibly high. Mm. And that's because you've, you've taken people who could be doctors and they are differentiated from the people that they're going to be treating. Yeah, yeah. And then they're not going to listen to them. But the other, the other thing here, to go back to the silly barista thing, like there's kind of a bigger thing there of like of pay disparity and like class hierarchy. Like we know some work has greater social value, right? So, like, the bin man has greater social value than the landlord. That is true. but mm-hmm. And that currently isn't reflected in how much money they get. But if you are, like, a socialist, are you still fully bought into this idea that 
the doctor should be paid more than the nurse. The Kropotkin part of my brain goes slightly sceptical about that. You're trying to abolish private property, right, as a, as a leftist. You're trying to abolish private property and class antagonism and class division. But then you're going, this person should be rewarded financially over this person. And I don't know. I'm slightly sceptical of that. The idea that there should be like a proportionate reward, mm. that like this idea of proportionality of like input to output is already within like a very capitalist frame. Yeah, it, It's more like everyone should hit the, the minimum level to live with a standard of life and dignity. Mm. And anything beyond that is just like a bonus. Yeah, yeah. But like... What if a doctor hits that and a nurse hits that? What more do you really want? If you if you if you live, you have a house, you have mm. you have like enough money to live on and a bit extra to pursue whatever your earthly desires are. Why does anyone need more than that? This idea of like rewarding skill. The idea is that the doctor has trained more and studied more, and is their work is more skilled and therefore should be rewarded more. Like you're born into a lot of that. Like you you are you are born into your predisposition for enjoying studying that aspect of i don't know biology or medicine you might have like a parents or a school or a teacher that cultivates your interest in that like not everyone has that but you're saying you should be rewarded for it but you're how you get your medical degree that yes costs lots of money and was like very difficult to get and took years to do but then it's like it becomes like capital that you're using to your advantage you know kropotkin would say you're you're using it like a capitalist uses their the means of production, like a capitalist uses their factory. You're using you're like using it as a means to gain uh, status and power over others. And it's like I don't know. It's it's kind of high wages aren't really yes. There's like skill and demand, but there's a lot of other stuff going on there. And how you got that training, and actually, even if you you know you worked immensely hard, there's all the people that the social knowledge and stuff you got that got you to where you are. Uh, it's just. It's very complicated. Um, that barista also, thing just gets can get you thinking about a lot of things that I haven't necessarily got the answers for. But well, I think I think the re- student doctors get treated like shit, yeah, and that is necessary as part of the justification, right? Mm. If you've been treated like shit while you're a student, and then suddenly you get this big reward, yeah, you can yeah, be like, yeah. well, I've earned it through the suffering that the, that the yeah, system that I'm now upholding like, has put suffering. on me, yeah. yeah. But also, one, I don't want doctors who are motivated by financial reward. No, <laughs> I want doctors no, who are just no, motivated no. by being like, I cured someone. Yeah, someone, yeah. Was, someone was all crumpled up and I flattened them out. People can't imagine that there would be incentive for people to do stuff that's not financial. Mm. But I think if you had a system where students, while they're learning, are treated with basically the same level of dignity and also the, the material compensation to like live while they're studying, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then when they're a doctor... And you'll be like, well, all the doctors who were motivated by avarice are leaving. That's fine. We can just use propaganda. Just make doctors be cool. <laughs> just pop songs are about doctors being cool. Action figures about doctors being cool. Commission an anime about doctors that are cool. Mm. Doctors will come back. One very good anime, one shonen about yeah. a young boy who keeps curing harder and harder to cure people. Bam. Doctors everywhere. House prequel. Young house. <laughs> <laughs> Morale's pretty grim. Like I say, when I when I walked into the trust on the first day, I kind of <laughs> tried to make small talk with one of the healthcare assistants, and I said, "Oh, it's really hot in here, isn't it?" And she just looked me up and down, and she was like, "Well, you're a nurse. You won't be hot because you won't be bloody doing anything." It's like this is my first interaction 
in a new place and everyone is just like miserable as fuck. It was gross. Not everyone, but the majority of people go into nursing because they know what they want to do and they know what they want to achieve and they want to do a good job. And when you're just not able to do a good job, it's just crushing. And then to see all the complaints that come in and all of the targets that you don't reach, yeah, it's pretty gross. The overriding theme of why everyone acts like this is lack of staff and lack of time. I do think over time, it has turned into bitterness. It's turned into kind of a machinery. One of the fundamentals you're taught at university is it's patient-centered. You do everything around what the patient wants. Um, and everything we're taught in uni is very idealistic. Anything the patient can do for themselves, they do. So if a patient can wash certain parts of their body, they wash. But when you get there, no one asks because it takes too long. For a 90-year-old man to wash his face, it's so much quicker for us guys to just give, it a, give him a scrub. But then in turn, that I think not giving especially elderly people any independence creates them to deteriorate and then creates more health problems. So I think it's a vicious, vicious circle. It's so weird because it's so big and it's got this kind of pressure status that we're simultaneously like never going to meet people's expectations and we're like wonderful heroes. Medicine is still a bit of a boys club and is still overwhelmingly white and middle class and that is definitely a challenge. I've definitely seen more female doctors in the last few years but again they are trained by systems which uphold all of those prejudices so but yeah I think a lot of it is just based in the fact that doctors are who they are and paid what they're paid and they are in their own sort of little bubble. I think all the doctors I work with their kids all go to private schools and I wouldn't be surprised if they all had private healthcare. But the junior doctors that that run the hospital that, that I work in, they earn less than me. And that to me is terrifying <laughs> because I think, I don't think I'm an iron enough. I can barely afford to finish the month. And I think that the decisions they make are like literally life and death decisions. And I just think, why would anyone put them? Well, obviously I know why they put themselves through it because it's an investment, isn't it? But bloody hell, there's um, obviously a lot of ageism. I heard someone say to me, you'll hate old people after you've worked here for six months. And she herself is in her seventies. <laughs> So it's just, um, yeah. And like the amount of nurses that you meet that are kind of staunch conservatives and like the amount of people that kind of said to me throughout the COVID crisis, I suppose, Boris is just doing his just doing his best though, isn't he? And I was just like, look around. We don't even have gloves. What are you talking about? It was just, oof, he's doing a good job though, isn't he? Heartbreaking. It's weird, isn't it, that like every election, there's like, oh no, the, t- the Tories are going to privatise the NHS. And it's like, okay, that's probably true. But loads of the NHS is already privatised. A lot of that was done under Blair. And it's done in like a sneaky, sneaky way. Like loads of stuff's ran by Virgin, but it just doesn't say Virgin anywhere. The logo says NHS. So you're like, I'm in an NHS hospital, Mm. but it's ran by Virgin. The sneakiness of that is weird. But also private healthcare exists alongside the NHS and uses loads of the same stuff. You know, people are like, oh, there's a really bad waiting list. So, you know, more people are going private. And it's like, well, the, the private healthcare is the waiting list as well. Like mm-hmm. they're using more often than not the same facilities, the same staff. You're just paying to jump the queue. And it, uh, the fact that it exists, the fact that you can pay to just reinforce class inequalities in health <laughs> is fucked. The existence of private healthcare alongside the NHS and within the NHS, but it's the stuff that's already there. Like if it obviously the NHS is better than as as we said an American system, but private industry is already in there and its tentacles are like obviously PFI, but then stuff just draining resources, as I've mentioned cherry picking. So they'll pick 
easier, more profitable procedures that they can build the NHS. Or if you're if you've gone private, they're more likely to deal with stuff that's cheaper and easier to sort out. So the waiting list is bigger on the NHS because it's the most expensive stuff. And then complications with private treatments. If something goes wrong, often the NHS is then coming in to fix it. Training costs. The NHS and the government bears most of the costs of training healthcare professionals that then go and work in the private sector. The state is subsidising private healthcare providers. I feel like everyone who's worried about privatisation in NHS is waiting for like this binary distinction to become apparent. Like, okay, it's not privatised now, but it almost will be. And then one day it's like the doomsday clock ticks past midnight. It's like, okay, and now it's private. Boom, now it's privatised. But um, not only is that never going to happen because the privatisation is intentionally, and also just by the nature of privatisation, it's like a sort of a cancer that buys and eats mm. stuff up and then you can't get it back because it's too expensive. Is It happens very, very subtly and it doesn't want you to know it's doing it. It, it prefers to be thought of as the NHS. But crucially, it's never going to be cut. The gong's never going to ring out because mm. none of the people whose private interests are now wrapped up with the NHS want it to become fully privatised because then it's not going to receive all the state yeah. subsidies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole point is you've got this central trunk of the NHS that is absolute. It's, like it's like a siege around a castle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anytime it wants to do anything that's not a service it currently has, which is fewer and fewer because they're all mm -hmm. being bought up by private companies, it has to charge at rates set by the private services and send patients off to that. And it's the, it's the NHS that mm. foots the bill. That central trunk of the NHS, which will always exist because it can be continually ransomed off. Well, they love the brand. That's why they're not allowed. There's regulations that are like, well, you can't put Virgin Healthcare anywhere because you want it to say NHS. And, they, and yeah. in an unusual case, the corporations prefer that. Yes, that's yeah. what they want. They don't want to reveal what they're doing. I don't want someone to complain to the correct email when I <laughs> take off the wrong foot. <laughs> yeah, but that's also what the, the, the funding debate obscures because it's like, obviously, we want healthcare professionals to be paid well and have good working conditions and we want the NHS to be funded properly so people can get the care they need. But if you're just talking about funding and that's the talking point, it's like, well, where's the money going? Why are things more expensive? Private companies are like, have got their tentacles everywhere and they're just taking the money. That, that money went like, oh, the Tories can say in some aspects they've increased NHS funding. And I believe them because that's what they've done is handed billions of pounds to their mates. Mm. The same as Blair did, but they've obscured it. And that's that. That's if you're a, if you are someone doing that. If you are a private company whose profit is based on people being ill and suffering, and then you helping them, which is a fucked fucked thing to be a business model anyway. You want that to be hush hush. And it means that everyone is perpetually in this state of like, oh, it's about to get privatized. Yeah, yeah. They're all waiting for the gong, and the gong's never going to happen. But we've lived under this sense of. I mean, it's. People talk about fatigue mm. of a lot of things. We've always got several crises that are overlapping for our <laughs> yeah, attention. Yeah. Living under the healthcare crisis of it's about to be privatised has given mm. people this false impression that like one day it will be privatised and it will never happen. We're going to live like yeah. this perpetually. Yeah. And what it will mean is just pouring more money into the money all. Mm. Every politician can pledge just throw a little bit more money in that money all <laughs> to go into <laughs> Richard Branson's Cayman Island dessert factory. <laughs> the staffing ratios are so slim the NMC recommends like one nurse to every kind of eight patients ish but we're running at about one nurse to kind of 14 and at night one nurse to 23 if someone goes off sick or doesn't pitch up or goes off halfway through a shift it's even worse <laughs> there's absolutely no like slack in the system everything's just like been 
cut to as lean as possible to save money over the course of especially the last 10 years. Like that feeling of like there isn't enough time, there isn't enough people, there isn't enough from the, like the minute you kind of walk into the NHS that's just there all the time. You know, really, really struggling to kind of do anything. It's, it feels like often it's difficult to justify spending time trying to draw out that, like, you know, ideally we'd spend quite a lot of time with people trying to really get to know them, really understand, collaboratively set goals that are what they want to do. And I feel like I have to give up on a lot of people. So overall, the success rate of my job feels very low. I spend entire shifts chasing my tail, trying to keep up with all the jobs that need doing when staff phone in sick and there just isn't anybody to cover for them. And so you're doing that again with even fewer staff than you're supposed to have. It becomes impossible to keep on top of everything and that's when you start to see nurses working a 13-hour shift who then stay on beyond the end of that 13-hour shift to make sure all their paperwork's done and all the care plans are up to date to make sure that that continuity of care happens because they didn't get a chance to do that earlier in the day. I'm on a placement now. I'm doing the basics. I'm at the beginning of my studies. We're taught how to wash people, you know, the very basics, but it's not, it's healthcare assistants that do all of this stuff now. But they're not following the protocols. And I can see that it's because they're so understaffed, they have to get all of these people washed and fed within seven hours or whatever. There is just not the amount of staff to do it. So they don't have the care and the precision that maybe I'd want someone to have with my grandparents. You are overworked, underpaid, and you're doing 12-hour shifts. These women are living off Red Bulls. You can't say anything bad to the patients. You can't say, oh, we know. Like, it's really hard. We know everyone's stressed. You have, it's kind of an unspoken thing between the staff. So you literally have to be like, no, everything's fine. And then you go in the staff rooms and you go, oh, we can't do this. There are two nurses to 30 patients. There is not enough hands to literally do everything that needs doing. You do a 12 and a half hour shift, you've got 14 patients. That already leaves you with less than an hour to spend with each one. That's, you know, assuming that you're nursing the entire time when you're not. Like, the majority of it is computer work, paperwork, meds rounds, all of the other stuff you've got to do, cleaning. <laughs> it's just, it's just ridiculous. You probably don't spend more than 20 minutes with a patient in an entire shift. 12 and a half hour shifts. So I started, I'd never done a 12 and a half hour shift in my life. I still can't manage it. It's still the hardest thing I've ever done. Realising that the NHS used to be eight hour shifts on rotation and now it's 12 and a half you can tell even senior nurses that have been there for 25 years they get to about the 10th and 11th hour and the quality of healthcare declines drastically in that time because everyone is exhausted student nurses are supposed to have supernumerary status while we're in clinical practice we are supposed to be having an educational experience and everything we do in practice is supposed to be learning how to perform that role and always under the direct supervision of a registered nurse but because there are so many staffing pressures right across the nursing workforce, it means that often we find ourselves being moved around to cover for gaps left by short staffing elsewhere. And student nurses are unpaid while we're in clinical practice and we're there to do a different job. But it is a case of just get the students to do it. And I calculated that from a placement that I'm currently on, I should be getting paid £2,800. In fact, I'm actually paying to do it. So it is it is just free labour. The NHS, even though it's what's good about it is that it's universal, you know, and it's it's this collectivist thing that has its origins in like Welsh mining mutual aid. But it exists in the kind of modern global culture of healthcare, which because of, I don't know, neoliberalism, whatever, is very individualist. So we see stuff that's about shifting the focus away from social processes 
to the individual. Like things like CBT. If you're depressed, it's like, well, to a certain extent, maybe you're depressed because the world's fucked, but there's no address in like, oh, maybe the things that are making you feel horrible are like real and in the world. It's just like, here's some tools to not think about that so much. Here's some tools to, uh, you know, that kind of well-being shit, you know, like couch to 5K or whatever. There's just stuff that's like, sort yourself out. There's two things that come to mind on this. One is that the NHS in people's perception has just become hospitals because the idea of like social and community care that that healthcare extends beyond the doctor's surgery Mm. is really, really diminishing. The idea that um, health professionals take an interest in what people are doing in their own communities and their own environments and thinking about how that could be better for extending people's life and quality of care. That is, there's just no resources left for that. There's not even a consideration, right? That the healthcare is, is the hospital. The thing downstream of the CBT is if the CBT is not working, there's just the modern, like, ultra-hyper-individuated austerity propaganda of being like, maybe you should be a bit more judicious when it comes to working out if you even need healthcare right now. Mm. Maybe you could just pull that pitchfork out yourself. Do you really need to bother a doctor <laughs> about it? <laughs> just pull it out of your foot, you know? Do yeah. you really need to take up a whole chair? <laughs> <laughs> Healthcare isn't just hospitals, and it's lots and lots of things. And that's why, you know, I don't know, Spain ranks very high. I think it's always number one recently on, like, healthcare things. I think Spain has a very similar system to the NHS with uh, all the same problems of, like, private companies nipping at its heels. But also, Spain has a different food culture. I don't know, Mediterranean diet stuff. Like, social factors come in that Mm -hmm. that affect people's health. So, stuff like... If we took another look at school PE and yeah. how fucked that is in this country, uh, but everything's just about you as an as a individual. Like, people's relationship with the NHS is as a consumer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as an, and as an individualist consumer, and that kind of pervades everything about, like, is the messaging and even the stuff, even discourse about the NHS of, like, the concern is, you know, the patient is the consumer. The patient is a type of consumer, right? Something that they're trying to push, even though we are all absolutely hostage to whatever trust catchment we live in. Yeah. It's like, that is your local trust. Mm. And if you do want to move, like move actual house to be in a different trust, well, good fucking luck, because they don't talk to each other, their computer systems can't communicate, they've lost all of your files, and you're absolute <laughs> tabula rasa with no medical history, and have to be re-diagnosed for like 30 plus years of health conditions. So, <laughs> Which actually happened apply. to me, by the way. <laughs> it happens to everyone, yeah. Like, yeah. The idea that we're a consumer but like one why would you want to be why would you want to be a consumer of your own healthcare Mm. you just need healthcare yes you need to be healthy the system which brokers it towards us is too crumbled to be something that that can be consumerized in that way what you do have instead is just keeping costs down the the only reason that you're being told you're a consumer is so you can choose not to Mm. whereas someone who's Mm. entitled to something would just take it so that they don't get an infection get the correct medication a consumer doesn't do that because a consumer is is shrewder than that you can see the exact same overarching policy of like britain treats its sick people the way it treats its roads like they'll only ever clean up a pothole when someone's already come off the road and crashed into a ditch (laughs) (laughs) now imagine that car's your body and mind (laughs) we focus so much on treating disease and illness but there's nowhere near as much preventative health care as there should be because that all ties in with social care and community care and providing health care long before anybody gets to the acute setting and being admitted to hospital 
that's where those health inequalities are most prevalent. You know, austerity is not just affecting the NHS. And the biggest things that you know, affect me and my job and other people I speak to, but it's social care, it's housing, it's you know, services in the community, public transport, like everywhere that austerity has touched, that affects people's mental health. For me, the biggest frustration is not being able to help people because of all the barriers in those other places. I've been sent to work with them to try and minimise their social isolation and loneliness. They're in a house that they can't leave. They're physically trapped because of unsuitable housing and they're unable to move because there's no you know, appropriate, accessible social housing available. I physically cannot do the job I've been tasked to do because that person's trapped in their home well-funded social care and well-funded community health initiatives would go a long way to preventing so many health problems before they ever become a health problem which would have a double bonus of reducing the pressure on the acute trusts and what's coming in through the front door of the hospital and then also leveling out those health inequalities because people should be able to have the same access to those preventative services before they're ill in the first place and at the moment it just doesn't happen. I love the NHS and I love what it stands for and I love what it should be but I fucking hate it at the same time it's just like useless <laughs> and I don't feel like any amount of money would fix it I just I, it's beyond that now and I think the issue is social care in my opinion not not the health service in our ward over half the patients there are medically stable for discharge but have nowhere to go so that's like half the beds in the entire hospital we don't use the term bed blockers anymore but bed blockers just people who desperately need social care but there is none there's either no nursing home placements or there's no carers to look after them in their own home so they just sit in hospital like up to about six months some people just in hospital well completely well just might need someone to go in once a day and give them some breakfast and they can't go home and that is just heartbreaking and they become massively institutionalised, they become, they deteriorate, probably get sick again, they'll catch infections. And it's just like this awfully depressing cycle because someone might arrive in the hospital quite poorly, you fix them, and then they've got nowhere to go. So they just spend the next six months getting worse until they get discharged into a nursing home. It's just miserable. If there's a question mark about someone's home environment, we just can't send them home. And then it becomes like an interesting question about where does our responsibility lie? Obviously, you don't want to be sending people home without support, but again, not a health issue. So we are picking up the slack for the fact that there is no social care service. We try not to think too much about 2019, but old Jezza had a plan to make a fully funded social care system like the NHS, didn't he? And I just try not to think about it because I just think it would have solved the majority of the, the problems that we're facing at the moment. A big part of this and the thing that makes working in mental health very difficult is a sort of a, sh a cultural shift that kind of goes back to like the 80s and there's like this growing like movement by you know the people that services are for so like mental health kind of activists and disability and disabled activists growing in terms of like demands about you know not being kind of marginalized and pushed out and institutionalized and you know being you know recognized as as people from that movement emerged something kind of called like the recovery model so it's this idea that mental health isn't like you know uh you're sick you get treated you're mentally ill or you're mentally well but like there's this idea that, that you might have mental illness or symptoms of mental illness that are with you throughout the lifetime and that doesn't mean that you can't have a good life it was quite convenient to a sort of neoliberal state that was trying to pull away support 
we get things like a lot of people being moved out of institutions and into the community, which is something that ideologically I support, but the way that it was done and the amount, a lot of people kind of felt quite abandoned by that shift. But now the models and the kind of paradigm that we have about mental health treatment is like, oh, you know, everyone has ups and downs. It's all about living with, we, we learn to live with it. But it doesn't exist in isolation. We're trying to treat it in isolation from everything else. So, you know, there's talk about like, money for the NHS is kind of ring-fenced and protected. But in a context where everything else is being slashed, it almost means it kind of gets bigger and bigger because it's like, well, we'll put this into health now. Maybe things shouldn't, don't need to be in health because health is everything. Right? Where, where's the limits? Where do you draw a line? It's that kind of far-reachingness of, of austerity that there's just that misery everywhere, not just in you know our specific workplaces. But we're trying to we're trying to help people to be well in this like profoundly sick society. NHS workers have a bad time, particularly frontline staff, overworked, underpaid navigating an ever more complex bureaucracy of bullshit mm. um and that is you know it's just it's exploitation that results from a system that undervalues its workforce it's kind of does not really materially give a shit about staff well-being <laughs> and even when they kick off about stuff they can pretty much only kick off about pay whereas all of the things that are making their work hard are not just pay it's not like yes just suffer and we'll give you a bit more money that's not going to solve it that's not going to solve like staff shortages overwork tiredness stress horrible workplace culture you know we've, we've already said mm, maybe healthcare professionals should not be deified as like these perfect human beings uh, from the perspective of the patient but also uh you know they should be treated as human beings as well but also yeah they should be treated as well no i'm saying two things have like they should be treated as human beings and just pay is not gonna solve that do the nhs job adverts say come for the noble cause stay for the life-threatening stress and exhaustion oh but we clapped you in uh covid we gave you claps yeah, Nigel Farage up. came out and smashed a wok with a hammer. What more yeah. can you ask for? Yeah, POV, you have broken your arm and now need to be tended by the most stressed people you will meet in your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're like, any other time when you're in like someone else's workplace and you're always like a little bit apologetic because, you know, you're taking mm. up space. Like, we always talk about like our inability to kick up any fuss if yeah, food yeah. we've been served is like <laughs> just flat out wrong. But... In an NHS environment, it's like, I'm so sorry to literally even be here. Yeah. Through being here and in this bed, someone else is suffering on a chair. Yes. If your condition gets worse, someone else is going to receive less health care. Mm. Like, everything you do, everything you require is taking it out of the mouth of someone who might need it more. It's awful, the guilt of being <laughs> ill. The guilt of being ill, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry I'm ill. I'm going to stress this person whose job is horrible out yeah i'm sorry so for you've creating got work. you're not asking you've got so many incentives for not yeah. reporting your conditions you've got so many mm. like overwhelming social pressure to diminish yeah the actual symptoms and conditions you're in yeah oh. because you're being you are it's not even you're being made to feel like you're using up time and space and resources you are there's mm. not enough not enough are provided for people everything that is used removes it from for someone else and that's the decision that's the decision whirring in the back of the head of every member of staff that you're going to meet and it's awful for all parties yeah and it's yeah. systemic as well it's very difficult for medical professionals to campaign and literally go this is fuck can we unfuck the nhs 
make this good. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely difficult to do that. Uh, and also on the horizon, you've got like, you know, West Streeting lurking there. Like there's mm. no, feels like there's no escape, right? West Streeting's new policy to put vending machines in hospital beds. <laughs> to put a vending machine implant into NHS workers. Like yeah. you, you can pay off, we're going to pay off your nursing training, even though we're, so we're making you pay for your nursing training now. Don't worry, we're going to get rid of that by making your arm a vending machine. Where's streeting branded coin-operated IV drip? <laughs> <laughs> well, not just IV drip, like you might want a Twix and then that'll go. No, it's all out of the same machine, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of your medicine comes out, but it also goes for an extra 20 p. you can have a Twix. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm actually diabetic. Ooh. Yeah. What you don't realise is it doesn't give it to you solid, it just puts it straight in the drip into your arm. <laughs> Immediately, mm. immediately your monitoring machines start beeping. These blood sugars through the roof. This guy's got Twix in his blood. Quick. Prep for surgery. Prep for surgery. We need to get that Twix to out of that. Blood. Yeah. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Lewis Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean with additional music from Sean Morley. Thank you very much to the NHS workers we interviewed, Josie Stripe, Erin Cullen and those who chose to remain anonymous. Thank you for listening to Mando's and special thanks to those of you who support our work by sharing this episode on social media or supporting us at patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party where you'll find a wealth of bonus content. Hope you're doing okay, friends. Mando's.